When I was in seminary, I, I read an essay for a class on, uh, on church history, and it, I don't remember much about the essay, but I remember the title and I remember the metaphor that he used for, to help us to think about the past, to think about tradition, to think about what uh, in theological terms we might call historical theology. That is what our fathers have thought about theology. How should we think about that? And the metaphor he used is, he said, is historical theology a fortress or a launching pad? Is it a fortress or a launching pad? And as a fortress, we, we might want to take something that happened in the past, uh, let's call it tradition, and we might want to build walls around it to protect it, to guard it. We might want to make a fortress for it, so that nothing happens to that tradition or that theology that was developed by our fathers. Or maybe what's happened in the past, the tradition, the historical theology that we have inherited from our fathers should be a launching pad that we use to go out and further explore not only the Bible, Uh, but also tradition and the ways that we apply it to our current moment. And I think that as I read through that essay, I realized that it was not either or, but both and. We ought to be guarding and protecting the treasures that have been given to us by our fathers, the things that we have inherited, what we might call traditions, so long as they are faithful to Scripture, of course. But we also want to use what has been done in the past as a launching pad to apply the tradition to our own current cultural moment. As we looked last week at John chapter 5 and the healing of the man who was a paralytic for 38 years, I I said that uh, we would not focus on what the main point of that text was, but instead dwell upon the healing of that man, whether uh, it was a physical healing of, God, of Jesus restoring him for a man who has not walked in 38 years, to be able to walk is a sign of the power of God that resides in Christ. But we said also that uh, that physical healing was meant to be a sign also of the spiritual healing that Jesus offered, not just Uh, 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 being able to walk, but new life. And we said that that man did not quite understand what Jesus was doing. And so also the Jews did not understand what was taking place. And they uh, began to get upset at him. And why they got upset at him, why they were angry and wanted to persecute him was because Jesus had done this on the Sabbath. So this morning, uh, we're going to look now at uh, why we're going to basically just be answering one question. Why are the Jews so angry that Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath? And uh, as I begin to prepare this sermon, I realize that there is more here for just than just one sermon. So this is part two, and next week it'll be part three. Today we're going to be talking about tradition Um, and we're going to be singling in on that question. Why are the Jews so angry? And then next week, we're going to try to apply what we've talked about today and relate it to the Christian Sabbath. Is there an ongoing Sabbath for the people of God, and what does that look like? So uh, this morning, if you have your Bibles, please stand with me 
as we read from the Gospel of John, beginning at chapter 5 at verse 1, and we will read to verse 16. We stand for reverence for the Word of God. If you were in our Sunday school hour, they stood when they heard Ezra read from the law. And so we stand to read from the Gospel. So remember that these are the very words of God. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has a five-roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And we just, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that it had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we thank you for your word. We bow our hearts in reverence to receive it now. We ask for open hearts and open ears to respond with hearts that have been transformed by seeing Jesus Christ. We ask, Father, that as we open this word, that you would give us insight, that you would stir our hearts to repent and to trust more fully in you. For we pray this in Jesus' name and amen. Amen. You may be seated. So as I mentioned, the the man who was lame for 38 years is told by Jesus that he is to be be cautious not to sin any longer lest something worse may happen to him. And as we unfolded that, what that might mean, we looked at The ways that God is at work in Jesus Christ to restore what has come upon the whole world because of sin. Namely, sickness and eventually death. And death is not just physical, but death is also a separation from God. From a right relationship to Him. You can have healing in your physical body and not be healed in that separation that exists between you and God. And unless both happen, then you will go the same way that all men go, to the grave and then to judgment. But what Jesus offered is not just physical healing, but life eternal. And that's going to be uh, uh, evident as he continues to use this miracle to draw people to faith in him, to see that what I have done, I have done as the Son of God. 
and the Savior of the world. But the question that comes this morning is, why does Jesus do it this way? Why does He place a stumbling block before the Jews? I mean, we can imagine Him doing it a different way on a different day. Why does He ask them to get up and take up His bed, knowing that that might inflame them? Why does He do it on the Sabbath? Why not on Sunday? Why not on Monday? What is Jesus doing? And of course, in this incident, we see the beginning of the end. Jesus, from this persecution that arises because of this very healing, leads to His death. Jesus very intentionally does all that He does. He doesn't haphazardly just see someone and then go heal him. He heals him on the exact time that he wants to with the exact methods that are designed not only for his glory, but to lead him to the cross. You can tell a lot about someone's character when they are provoked. What happens? How do they respond? When when, when somebody does something that you don't like, how do you respond? Right? We would like to say that we respond graciously and, and we're filled with mercy and compassion and, and we empathize with why they think differently than do we do and, and we want to uh, charitably bring unity and bring us together. And on the best of days, maybe we do do those things. But oftentimes what happens immediately is become, we become angry and we want someone to understand what we are saying and so we get angry angry when they don't when somebody upsets something that is dear to us when somebody comes and and denigrates a tradition that we hold so dearly and we get angry and we respond and and, and many times god does this intentionally to provoke that response to get us to see our sin to get us to see the ways that we respond and then Turn in repentance. David David said in, in Psalm 141, Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil from my head. Let my head not refuse it. Is that your response when somebody rebukes you? I know it's not it's not often my response. Is that your response when somebody provokes you, when somebody pokes fun or 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 tears down your precious tradition or your we have to see in this that Jesus is intentionally drawing the Jews the people he came to save to examine their own hearts why do we hold this thing so dearly why is this so important and and how We have the insight of of looking back at this situation, knowing full well that the one they are trying to persecute is the Messiah who came to save them. And isn't that often the case when someone comes to us with good intentions, meaning to show us our sin, but yet we miss it because we respond in anger. And then maybe then maybe what our response is exactly like these Jews. From that moment, the Jews began to persecute Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. 
Now, I want to say just one word about John's use of the, the Jews. Uh, I haven't mentioned this earlier, but it's important, I think, given our, our, our moment, but also just to clarify that John is not an anti-Semite. He's not referring to the Jews because he hates Jews. He's referring to the Jews because they are his people and they are Jesus' people. But they are people who have rejected Jesus. He is uh, responding because when Jesus came, his own people rejected him. His own people. He was a Jew. And he came to his own. And his own people did not receive him. John 1.11 John is not setting up a contrast to show us a people group that we should despise or denigrate. That's not the reason why he says the Jews. He's using that because when Jesus came to his own people, they rejected him. His own people. That's how we should read it when John says this. His own people began to persecute him because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. That's how we should read what Jesus is doing. Now, it's hard for us to understand what Jesus' motives are, but it's even harder for us to understand why they get so angry that this man is carrying his bed. Why is it that their first response is to say, to ask him, why are you doing this? And not to rejoice with him that the man who has suffered, who has not walked in 38 years, is now walking, probably rejoicing. Would you not be rejoicing if you had been bedridden for 38 years? Of course you would. I would be dancing with my bed. And the whole world would know what had just happened. The text doesn't say that. That's what happened like like it does in the event in in Acts where Peter and John heal the man lame. And he goes dancing and leaping and praising God. But you can imagine him doing something like that. At least he's filled with happiness. Why do they respond to him in this way? Why, Why not enter into rejoicing with him? And how on earth can this event, of all events, provoke murderous response? Provoke persecuting of Jesus? I think the key, the very key to their response is found in verse 10. So the Jews, so his people, said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Those two things are enough to provoke these people to want to persecute Jesus. But why? That doesn't make sense to us. We care little for the Sabbath. In our nation, even, I dare say, in the church. But... To understand why the Jews responded this way, we need to know something of their history. You see, God had made a covenant with Israel and promised them blessings for their obedience and curses for their disobedience. He entered into a relationship with them and He said, I will be your God and you will be my people. 
Walk before me and be holy. And he set them apart. He consecrated them to be a holy people. And he gave them laws to help them to walk in holiness, to be distinct, a counterculture set apart from the nations around them that worshipped idols and had turned from the worship of God. And they were to be a light to the nations. And then God gave them kings who were to embody the covenant faithfulness. They were to walk as a faithful Israelite, showing the nation what it means to be faithful, what it means to be obedient to the covenant. And then He gave them priests to mediate any breaches. Whenever they broke the covenant, they could be forgiven. They could come and confess their sins and turn and repent and renew covenant with God and He would be gracious and extend His loving kindness to them. And He sent prophets who would speak to them and tell them, you're not being faithful to the covenant. They were like lawyers that came and prosecuted the people of God. They said, you have not been faithful. You have turned and worshipped other gods. You have profaned His Sabbaths. The prophet's words were supposed to lead them to go back to the priests and confess their sin and turn and be faithful. But Israel, over and over and over again, did not listen. In Ezekiel 20, verse 13 The prophet Ezekiel says this, but the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. In the wilderness. All the way back at the beginning of their history. They did not walk in my statutes, but rejected my rules by which if a person does them, he shall live. And my Sabbaths they greatly profaned. Then I said I would pour out my wrath upon them in the wilderness to make a full end of them. See, over and over and over again, God gave them centuries of warning to be faithful to Him. He was overwhelmingly gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But over and over again, they continued to turn away, to harden their hearts, to worship other gods and to continue to profane the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a day that God had set aside for the people to rest. God worked for six days. And on the seventh, He rested from His work. It was an, it was a, an ordinance that He instituted at creation. And He gave it to them in the moral law. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. It was to be a day of rest, a day for worship, a day of remembering not only that God is their creator who sustains them, but also of the Exodus, how God brought them out of Egypt and delivered them from their enemies and gave them a land that was meant to be a picture of that eternal rest that we all look forward to. But over and over again, they, they refused to listen and they profaned his Sabbath, his Sabbaths. And so, he sold them into captivity. It says in Second Chronicles 36.20, He took, speaking of 
Nebuchadnezzar, he took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia. This was to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Because you see, Keeping Sabbath did not just extend to setting aside a day of rest, but it also entailed setting aside a year of rest, the seventh year. And then on the Sabbath of Sabbaths, the year of Jubilee, debts were to be repaid, and lands that were sold to mortgage themselves would be returned to their original owners. You see, God cares even about the land. Right in the law is there for God giving rest to even the animals that work for us. It's about justice. We're going to talk next week a lot more about the Sabbath. But what happened was when the people of God returned after captivity in exile in Babylon, when they returned back to the land, they were very cautious not to fall into the same kinds of sin, not to repeat the mistakes of their past which is what happened in Nehemiah. We haven't got there yet in our Sunday school class, but in Nehemiah 13, verse 15, it said this, In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. Now pay attention to that. That's a burden. That's the kind of burden that Jeremiah is talking about. Bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys. And also wine and grapes and figs and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem. They're going to make money. They want to sell these things to people. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah and Jerusalem itself. And then I confronted the nobles of Judah and I said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing? Profaning the Sabbath day. Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. He said, we just paid for this sin. We just were exiled for 70 years away from our homeland. And have you not learned the lesson? We cannot continue to act in this way. And the nobles repent. And during this period, especially during that, what we call the intertestamental period between Malachi and Matthew, that time when God was silent, when He did not speak a prophetic word to the people of God. During that time, the rabbis were diligent to build fortresses around the law. They erected walls that would keep you from transgressing the commandment. Can you eat an egg on the Sabbath when the chicken has clearly worked to lay it? How far can you travel without breaking the Sabbath? Can you measure it in the the amount of sweat? Rabbis differed on application, but what was important was keeping it. And it was certainly a bonus 
if it was harder and unpleasant for you to keep. So you can imagine their anger. You can imagine their anger when Jesus, a new rabbi, comes on the scene. And by the way, a rabbi who is not credentialed like them. He didn't go through the Pharisaic school. He's not one of the Sadducees. But he comes and he opens up the Word of God with authority. And he begins to declare, Thus saith the Lord, like a rabbi. You have heard it said, but I say unto you, he says in Matthew 5. And they're angry because how dare you come in and mess with our tradition? How dare you violate the Sabbath and cause others to do the same? They were just exhibiting righteous anger at a false teacher. But was it righteous? Do they have a reason to be angry the way they are? Is Jesus commanding this man to break the Sabbath? And here we see the precarious place of tradition. It is a good goal to protect the truth. It is a good and honorable goal to guard and protect what is good and true and beautiful in this world. To develop thick traditions that protect the truth. But watch out that our fortresses that we build to guard and protect the truth do not become prisons that hold us captive. For soon we learn to love the walls of the fortress more than we love what the fortress was erected to protect. And soon all we're guarding is not the truth, but the, the walls that we built. The traditions that we put in place to keep us from breaking the law. Not the law itself. Tradition in the New Testament is used both positively and negatively. Jesus rails against the Pharisees because they, they elevate the tradition of the elders above the Word of God. That is, they miss the intent of the law. Their traditions are there to guard. But Paul commends the saints in Corinth and Thessalonica for maintaining the traditions that he had handed down to them. Tradition itself is not bad, but which tradition? Tradition is defined as the transmission of customs or beliefs from generation to generation, or the fact of being passed down in this way. It's about handing down the faith to another generation. It is a part of a culture that is passed down through generations, often through stories, through rituals and celebrations. Sources of tradition may include oral histories, texts, folk art, music, literature. But you can imagine that if you forget why the tradition was put in place, then you begin to just value the tradition itself. And not what the tradition was meant to pass down. The Sabbath was there for man to provide rest for him. To give him life. But it became such a burden that it actually, it actually took life away. We should care about passing on the faith to the next generation. How many of you have ever played the telephone game 
School teachers love this one, right? What happens when you whisper an idea in and then it goes around orally? Sometimes it, it comes back totally different than you thought. And of course, this testifies to the amazing, the the singular way that Scripture has been passed down from generation to generation and upheld its veracity, its truthfulness. For we are not often able to translate to the next generation our deep and abiding convictions about what is good and true. They struggle because often they don't have to fight hard for them like we did. They can take them for granted. And then by the third generation, they're completely lost. What became important was not the Sabbath rest, the remembrance of creation and exodus. What became important was what you could and could not do carrying his sleeping mat as if it was something he would sell or gain from makes a caricature of the law. This man is carrying something that held him enslaved. He is liberated and rejoicing in that freedom and they miss it. This illustrates an important point about tradition. We need to be careful that we are not trying to preserve tradition itself, but what the tradition is set in place to protect and guard, to hand down to the next generation. I'm not against tradition. It's good. It can be good. But it should be re-evaluated every generation to make sure the intent of what we are passing down matches up with why we put the tradition in place in the first place. We're, we're, we're currently watching this play out on the stage, not only in our churches, but in the state. The left wants to destroy lots of traditions that we hold dear. But oftentimes the right has absolutely no idea why we hold those traditions dear. And this is in the church and in the state. Progressives want to overthrow Westminster. We don't need that antiquated theology. Conservatives are trying to conserve Westminster as if it's the high watermark of theology and nothing else can be developed. But that's simply not true. Should we preserve what our fathers fought hard for? Yes and amen. Should we use it as a launching pad to grow and apply the truths that those fathers in the faith fought hard for? Yes and amen. We have to know where we're progressing towards. And we need to know what we're trying to conserve. Both in the church and in the state. But this also illustrates an important point. What the law can't do. The law cannot save. The law speaks a word that says, do this. It does not empower obedience. Remember the Sabbath is a law that God has given. But as Paul says in Romans 3.20, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. 
the sin points us to the reality, the deep reality, that we cannot keep it. That we need somebody to come from without and help us. The law does not empower obedience, but the Jews thought that keeping the law commended them to God. They thought that God would look at their Sabbath keeping. They thought that He would look at the ways they, they scrutinized every aspect of their life to make sure they were not breaking the law. They thought He would look at that and it would commend them to God. That God would declare, that is righteous. And, and what did God look at when He saw that? It's not enough! It's never enough! Because you are so tainted by sin that you could never fully obey it. This is what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount when He points to it's not the letter of the law, it's the heart. It's not good enough just to not commit adultery. You can't look at a woman with lust in your heart. It's not good enough just to not murder your neighbor. You can't even hate him. And which one of us can perfectly keep the law? Not one of us. We see the law. We read it. We know I cannot keep that. I need a Savior. I need someone to come and help me. And Jesus came. And He's right there. He's healing people by showing them that I'm, I've come. I am the new creation. And they, they're angry. They're angry because what they think is commending them to God, Jesus is saying, it won't. It won't help you. Jesus is trying to show them that it's only faith in Him. It's only a trust, a resting in Him as the Lord of the Sabbath that can save them from their sin. That can commend them to God as righteous. And this doesn't do away with the law, but it changes our relationship to it. No longer is it a slave driving us to try to obey more and more and more, never reaching the goal. But now it's, it's a joy. It's a delight. We get to keep the Sabbath. It's not something that God says, do this and live. He says, do this and have life. Because I've given you my life. And I've already entered into my rest. And you're going to enter into it with me. Next week we're going to talk a lot more about that. But we know, Paul says in 1 Timothy, we know that the law is good. If one uses it lawfully. Tradition divorced from the saving grace of Jesus Christ is meaningless. The Sabbath tradition ought to be protect, protected. And we're going to talk more about that next week. But not to the exclusion of being a launching pad so that we learn how to apply it to our lives today. The gospel of Jesus liberates us for obedience. He makes the lame to walk. Picture of the new creation. Grace restores nature. Grace brings us into the new creation so that we experience the joy of, of not, not having maybe our physical limbs repaired and strengthened, but our hearts repaired 
so that we can stand upright and, the, and proclaim the joy of the Lord is my strength. A rest that Jesus has fully entered into will one day come when He comes and brings us to be with Him, to experience it too. Until that day, we need to make sure that what our traditions are pointing to are the reality that Jesus came, suffered, and died, rose again, and ascended to His Father to accomplish. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father and our God, we give You thanks. We're so tempted to use things that You have given us, good things, like the Sabbath, as means to commend ourselves to You. But we know that it's not enough. We know that our law-keeping could never commend us to You. But You graciously gave us all things in Christ Jesus. You have clothed us in His righteousness. We are commendable because we're dressed in Him. Father, accept the worship we bring today and give us rest in Him. May our hearts rest in His finished work. And as we come to this table, may we be prepared to receive from Him the life that He offers. For we pray this in His name. Amen.